You're listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API. Now from the Nowcast Network Studios, here's Mike. Hey, welcome to the Audio Nowcast. My name is Mike Rodriguez, and before we get going, let me introduce the guys. Over here on my right, we've got the one and only Mr. Ken Kane. Yeah, I'm back. And right next to him, we've got Mr. Personality himself. Mr. Nick Peck. Hello, Mike. Hello, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. It is so good to be back in our uh, wonderful new digs. I'm really excited. <laughs> and across the table, actually, you know what? It's not all guys. We've got the producer extraordinaire, Miss Bliss McGinnis. Hello, hello, everyone. Yeah. And next to Bliss, over here. The Rock. On my left, where he should be, always and forever. Tony Stark. The, the one and only Iron Man. I've never missed a podcast in 180 shows. <laughs> Mr. Rob Arbiter. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Although, Rob, we had a close call in the last one. That was, yeah, we did. <laughs> that well, was a close call. You didn't want me there. I had a, probably 103 fever at the time. I caught something at NAM that just definitely laid me up for a while. But... <laughs> Uh, I was able to call in. I made a brief appearance, but uh, yeah, it's good to be back in the flesh. Yes. And by the way, if you notice that the podcast sounds different, it's because we are in some brand new digs over here at Sound Brigade. Ken Kane put together an amazing room and uh, it's just phenomenal. And I'm happy to have you guys here. We're using Rode microphones. This the, is the Procaster. It's really great. It's an, it's amazing. <laughs> and I'm still getting used to hearing my voice and uh, through this. You sound beautiful. I sound like very NPR, right? I feel like we should be talking about politics in Latin America or something. Well, since NPR isn't going to be around for much longer, I think we might have to be the ones to uh, fill in for them. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so if you notice a few things, there's a lot of things happening with the podcast, and uh, this is actually show 181, so uh, 181 shows, and it was about time we started to do something new. Um, so we're going with the redesign. We've got some really exciting news that we're going to talk about in a little bit, but uh, it's just, I'm just glad to be back on the air, man. I missed you guys. I missed every everybody. I mean, not having this outlet to talk about audio and so much has happened and so many things. I mean, we can start off with the fact that Avid is now down to four dollars and seventy five cents. Oh man, <laughs> is it really? It is. Come on, we're on a death watch here. <laughs> you know, um, what's amazing is, you know, they're still pushing out that come to Avid Connect, come to Avid Connect. Only five hundred dollars. You know, and it's, I don't know. We're we're gonna lay off Avid for a little bit, but I I had to get at least my my one dose of. Uh, avid dig in there. Um, but before we get into anything and we're going to talk about a lot of stuff, I, I got to tell you about something that happened. Um, went to a concert and saw the most amazing band ever. Saw Death Cab for Cutie. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with Death Cab, but they, if you listen to the record. Um, lyrics. Yeah. Great lyrics, great melody. And they have a really, I mean, let's face it. It's kind of a mellow sound. Yet, when you see them in concert, they are the most rocking band that you will – I mean, the emotion and just the energy that they put into their songs, I just didn't think they could elevate their music to that level. And it was truly a phenomenal concert. And I have to give a shout-out to a couple things. First of all, their crew was awesome. They have four guitars in the band. They were doing guitar changes left and right. Uh, 
you know, alternate t- um, tunings, things like that. And just everything was smooth. It was like clockwork. And it just, whenever you see a good show and you see a good concert, you know, and then you realize all the people that, that go in to make the concert so amazing. You just, I just have to give a shout out to that crew because they were, they were on the money and everything worked out good. I mean, I love when you go to a concert, you don't know what to expect. And then you just get literally blessed with an amazing show. I mean, you guys ever, do you have any bands that you've ever seen that, that, you know, can you relate to that? Yeah. When I was younger, growing up, there was a band I saw at the Spurs Center there called Lagwagon. Punk rock band. Probably you guys haven't heard of them, but. (laughs) (laughs) When was the last live show that you went to, Nick? The last live show that I went to. That'll have to take some thought in terms of uh, shows in which there was just unbelievable clockwork uh, performance on the part of the crew. Um, it's Rob's favorite band. It was seeing Rush's final concert, the R40 tour um, at the LA, at the Inglewood Forum uh, a little bit back. And the level of complexity of the way that the stagehands were moving stuff around on the stage while the band was playing was uh, it was that same kind of unbelievably smooth, rehearsed, you know, clockwork kind of thing. It's it's amazing, right? I mean, it, I literally saw that, and I, I wish I was back on the road because I just I love being part of that. It's like being part of a baseball team, you know. It's you're just part of a, a bigger group making something wonderful mm-hmm. happen. Rob, what about you? What's the last show? Believe me, I would have been all in favor of Rush's final concert. I just <laughs> wish it had come a lot earlier, <laughs> Mr. Summerfield. That was for you. Since you're not here, uh, I have to do it myself. Um, Actually, the last show that I saw that was a surprise was down in Austin, Texas. I saw Sleep at the Wheel, which is like Texas swing. And a lot of people, if you're not from that area, you may not know about them, although they do have pretty good national following. But the level of musicianship was just jaw-dropping. Just absolutely the most amazing guitar players, the most amazing uh, pedal steel players, incredible keyboards. I mean, just the level of musicianship just had my jaw on the ground. It was unbelievable. Plus, I know I know you went to the uh, Death Cab show. You saw that. What'd I you, did. I love Death Cab. They've been my favorite band since college. Got me through some hard times. Um, but no, they're just incredible. And I mean, I listen to them. They're so soothing. And it's like takes you to a different world when you listen to their music. But um, in concert, they just rock so hard. And they bring the energy level up like a million notches like you wouldn't even believe it's like different music but for a crowd that they're playing off the energy and it it's so incredible they're so good they did this one the on their encore they played um transatlantic trans at transcendentalism there you go <laughs> <laughs> thank you for the save anyhow it's an amazing song and if you listen to it on the on their CD, um, the energy has a little bit of push at the end. Um, but in concert, it was about a minute and a half of this amazing crescendo in energy that started from, you know, mid energy to just the most amazing, powerful sound at the end. And it was such a consistent slope. You know, sometimes when people are trying to raise the roof, it goes. A little bit, a little bit, and all of a sudden it goes up like that. You know, what's really hard is when you just have to slowly, nice linear move through that whole time. And it was just so emotional. It was great. So anyhow, I just had to, I had to give them kudos because that was just, it was an amazing show. And uh, you know what? I've got the email of the drummer. I'm going to send him a link to this podcast. Oh yeah, and you <laughs> asked um, the band name, how they got it. It was from the Beatles film Magical Mystery Tour. 
Really? There was a band or a song that was called Death Cab for Cutie that played in that in that film. So that's where the name came from. Great. Yep. It wasn't a Beatles song. No, it wasn't. It was in their film. Interesting. Uh, let's see. It was written by Neil Eanes and Vivian uh, Stanshaw, performed in their group by the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, what ne- is it? The Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. <laughs> Neil Innes was somebody that worked with Monty Python for a long time um, and also wrote uh, the Ruddles the, oh. the Ruddles Beatles thing. Uh, Vivian Stanshall was in Spinal Tap. Huh. Wow. Look oh, who at- was that, Viv? Man, we're going to learn a lot of stuff on the new whole podcast thing. <laughs> <laughs> Between Bliss <laughs> – <laughs> anyway, all that to say, it was an amazing show, and I I just go out and see live bands. You got to support. It's just great to see live music. Live music is the best. And just you know, you walk out of a show like that, and you're just like, yes, I'm I'm glad to be just a cog in this whole audio thing because stuff like that can happen. Living in the moment oh when when you can get a lot of people together and and you know everyone around you loves them too, right? So there's the camaraderie. There's, I've been to some really flat shows. Have you guys ever been to a flat concert? I've been to some really flat concerts. And you're just like, wow, you know, it's it's just – it's kind of embarrassing. And then uh, I'll tell you a show that I saw that was actually um, – was really kind of flat. And this was back when they were doing a big um, change of members. But it was um, Chicago, believe it what? or not. Yeah, I know. Can you believe that? No. They were <laughs> they, they were flat. I've seen them since and they, they got their spark back. But this was like, I don't know, it was a long time ago, probably late 90s or so. Um, and it, it was just, it, it just, sometimes you have an off night. And so, I don't know, you, you feel bad for for bands that, that do that. But then you see them a little bit later and they, they're back in it and they got their groove and it's totally just – Totally redeemed. It's pretty awesome. Or maybe you never see them again because they were so bad. Like the Lumineers circa 2015 at Coachella. <laughs> you just have no interest in seeing them ever again. <laughs> I think Legends, Legends you, you get – I don't know. I give Legends a uh, a pass. You know, I'll, I'll see them. I'll see him again. Actually, you know who I saw? I saw Toto once, and they just blew me away. They were so good, and this was like two years ago. So anyway, that's all I wanted to talk about in the live music, but I had to start with that because it's so great to see to see live music. Um, moving on, there's a couple other things I want to talk about. First of all, um, there's some big changes happening with the podcast. Um, obviously, not just the microphones. We're doing some really amazing things, and one of the things that we're doing, and uh, I'm going to tell you guys this, is we've uh, we're shooting – Audio now cast spaces. Spaces, spaces, spaces. Is that a TLC program? <laughs> <laughs> Literally, I've been talking about that for probably nine of the ten years that we've been doing this podcast. I've always wanted to do um, a video element to it because there's so much in audio. Um, audio affects us in a lot of different ways. And the goal of spaces was to – I wanted to go to places where music is made, played, or listened to. And oh. – we're going to places where it, it's made, played, or listened to. Um, we've shot an episode. And uh, we went out to London. Yes, we went out to London. Jaws on floor. And um, it's going to be the type of show where we're going to take you to places that um, 
that you'd want to go because I'd like to go, you know. I mean, we're just fortunate enough to have some connections to get us into different places. But we went to British Grove Studios, which is Mark Knopfler's studio. Wow. <laughs> that studio is truly a wonderful place. And it's I can see why it has the reputation that it has because the rooms that they have in there um, – they have an API room, then they have a Neve room. And the acoustics, it's so tight. It's so focused. It's just – it's what you would expect for a world-class studio. Um, the best thing about it was they had a Beatles red console that was refurbished. Now, not only did they have the console there, but I got to touch it. I got to touch the faders. And you know, wow. have you seen – everybody's seen the faders and it's the on the – yeah, it's, yeah. it's on the arc, and you always you laugh like, whoa, that's kind of weird, you know? Why is it? Why does it have the arc? When you put your hand there and you move it with the th- with your thumb, it kind of makes sense. Like this is really comfortable, and when you don't have to worry about working a ton of faders with a ton of fingers, when you only have like twelve faders, it actually it was really. I can see. I can see why they had that arc thing as opposed to going yeah, like yeah. A, like a slider. Yeah. Um, and that was for me being the the gear geek that I am, that was... <laughs> was it real smooth? Um, it was very smooth, and they refurbished it. The The tech there um, refurbished it to the point where they even used the same color of wiring um, on the inside. And it's beautiful. I was in awe. I, I was just... You're, you're halfway excited, and you're halfway nervous, and then it, it it's almost this is going to sound really sacrilegious, but it's almost like a religious experience being in places like that and being around that kind of that kind of gear. Um, I couldn't. I, I yeah, it was it was it was hard for me. And you'll see on the first episode to say more words. <laughs> I was saying amazing because I was I was I was I was blown away at. Just being there. Um, a highlight of the whole trip was listening to the beginning of Money for Nothing, you know, in 5 1 in Mark Knopfler's studio. It, it just doesn't get <laughs> any better than that, you know? And, uh, and Bliss was working the camera and she's recording me. And I, it was, I was like, I was, I was like a kid in a candy store, <laughs> but these are the kind of things that I want to show. I want to I want to show the audience, and I want to take people in the places that that I'd like to go to. Um, we also had the opportunity to go to um, Rack Studios, which is another big studio, and they have this API console that looks like you're you're piloting a rocket ship. It's it has this wooden wraparound console. The desk fits right in it. It's old school. Um, it's been around since the 70s. It's it's just beautiful condition. And you walk into a place like that and you're just – you want to cut a hit record. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I think they guarantee you a hit record if you <laughs> you're record there. But um, but that, that Rack Studios, they have a ton of credits and they um, – I don't want to give too much away because we're going to put a lot of it in the episode. But we went there and finally – we also got to go to um, Rockfield Studios. Rockfield Studios is where, well, for one thing, Queen recorded Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, Black Sabbath recorded there. 
uh, Rush recorded there. Coldplay. Cold, cold, Coldplay recorded there. It's it's this studio that's out in Wales, way out in the middle of nowhere, beautiful farmland um, that has all of this history, and it's owned by two brothers, um, Kingsley and Charles, the most generous, nicest people, um, got a tour of from Kingsley, and he was just telling us some stories, and it's like, see that spot right there? That's where Brian May played his uh, solo, and see that? That's where they set up the drum set, and it was, it was, it was really, really um, historical. Yes, and but it was, <laughs> it also gave me appreciation for all the work that goes in on on these records and on these classic records. You just really don't appreciate these classic records until you see how they had to record them and the gear that they had to record them on. I mean, now we take it for granted with Pro Tools and with all this, you know, nonlinear editing and things like that. But back in the day. <laughs> uh, so anyhow, um, I just wanted to give a little uh, a little tease on what's coming up because we started that. We've got some other episodes that we're shooting um, and it's going to be really great. We're going to go to where music is made, played, or listened to. Not just music. We're going to go to audio. We're going to take you into different um, facilities. We're also going to be going to home studios. It's I just want to show people just all the different places where where people can experience audio because mainly we have a lot of students that, that listen to our podcast and hopefully people can see what kind of career choices they can do and where you can where you can make a living in audio because we're all fortunate doing what we do at the level that we're doing but I can't imagine being in school and trying to figure out what I want to do with audio because certain things like, you know, the music industry, it's really hard to make a buck, but yet there's other places where you can go and, and, you know, still make money in audio. So. I mean, you kind of just don't know what you want to do in general and then you fall into something and I kind of fell into what I do and I didn't even know it existed. And that's actually the same way for a lot of people that I meet with in our industry. Like they don't even know what's out there. And so you just kind of feel it out and meet new people and see new things and then you end, end up here at this table. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So uh yeah, so that's, true. that's what we're going that's what we're going to be doing and uh so I just wanted to tease that a little bit. Um so Mike that's totally Yeah, I'm looking amazing. forward to it. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I am not going to use amazing anymore. He's I'm, not going <laughs> to say the a word on this podcast. I don't believe him. I have been banned. <laughs> Um, but, uh, one thing I will tell you is I did record a small little segment of my flying rig that I take when I fly. Um, and it's, it's kind of a fun little rig with, uh, I, I fly with a PC, um, and I use the Apogee Groove and I have two terabytes of disk space and I can set it up and I can Velcro it all to the back of my computer and not worry about the person in front of me, you know kicking back and closing my lid and everything. So I'll, sh- I'll show everybody that little totally geeked out nerd setup. <laughs> the fly rig. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you're going to meet, I- I'm going to tease this in the London episode, you're going to meet um, Chris Gallstone, who is a composer that does production music for um, APM. 
APM and, and Warner and uh, we go into his studio where he works and wow. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a classic rock star. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's just say being up till 3.30 in the morning, listening to music louder than you should and then jamming i was on piano he was on drums and then we switched and then i was on drums he was on piano and he is he is truly a phenomenal guitar player and uh yeah it's it's pretty fun so you're gonna meet him so i'm just gonna tease that and and move forward um one thing i want to talk about um and we're totally gonna do a total switch right now is uh i want to talk a little bit about some of the trends that are happening in, in the music industry one thing is, is I want to get your guys' opinion on this. Uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Behringer, and they're now going into synths, and they're now doing all the simulation. Um, and apparently they have like 20 synths, and they're emulating all these different sounds. And being as I've started traveling and we're going to different manufacturers and things like that, how do you guys feel about emulation and emulation when it comes to software and emulating hardware and basically taking sales away from some of the real equipment that's out there. You looking at me? Yes. I'm starting with you, You're Rob. looking at me? I mean, I think emulation, the main reason it's cool is because of convenience. I mean, a lot of times it's a way to get what you think is going to be the same thing as what's being emulated for a lot cheaper. But when you AB an emulation to the real thing, it rarely holds up. I mean, it might get close, but – uh, there's always something about the real thing that's slightly better. But that being said, the emulation is so convenient. I mean, I have a zillion synths at my studio that I can't take on the road with me, but some of them there are emulations for, and I'll use those, you know, if I'm composing on a plane or in some portable rig or something, the emulations are really convenient. But when I get back to the studio, I'll often retrack with the real thing because there's no... There's no actual substitute. I mean, especially for a synth, a lot of times it's the analog part of the circuitry that's that's creating a lot of the sound. So you might, even if you weren't emulating the digital, even if it was the exact same processor running the exact same DSP code, because the analog side of it is different, it's not going to sound the same. Right. And often those analog uh, components are really tuned uh, to be pleasing with that particular DSP engine. So you're never going to get that with an emulation. Nick, what about you? What about emulation? And how do you feel about that, just broadly? Uh, it's a very deep topic. Yeah. Um, I completely agree with Rob that the sound is absolutely not the same. Uh, you know, having started with, say, Hammond organ emulations and then going and actually buying my first Hammond organ and Leslie Speaker, the... The sound was completely different, much deeper, and more importantly, there's a whole notion of performance practice. And whether it's a, a synthesizer or a, you know an organ or a guitar or a bass or anything, for me, the the performance, the actual manipulation of whatever the parameters are of the instrument are, you know, really, really integral to the way that the thing will sound, right? right? Because of whatever the limitations might be on the instrument, you know, the the performance practice that you've evolved to be able to play it idiomatically yeah. is something that's really, really important along those lines. Um, the other, you know, the other thing I really wanted to say was I don't mind, 
I don't mind those kinds of emulations. What really bugs me are things like microphone emulations where they think that taking an impulse response and running it you know, through a convolution process will turn an SM57 <laughs> into, into a U47. That really bugs me. Yeah, yeah. Slate. That's like yeah. that's like classic digital snake oil. Yeah, there are lots yeah, of companies completely. that have tried to do that, and it's not even well. Slate, close. yeah, Slate came out with their microphone that was supposed to be neutral, and that right. you can tune it to anything. And you know, the reason why I, I wanted to ask wanted to ask you guys that because I've actually been kind of wrestling with this, and the more I get to look. I'm a total consumer and I like the most bang for the buck. But yet there's a time where you see, you see these companies and they're starting to emulate everything. And ultimately it's going to be taking sales away from some of the real stuff. Yeah. There's just no way about it. And the more I meet people in the industry and the more I meet people um, that work for some of these companies that they're emulating, the more I'm starting to like, you know what? That's not necessarily a good thing because if they go away, if that company goes away and then all we have is the emulations, there's something to be said about um, keeping the real thing around. And you look at, at live shows and you look at, Guys that know how to play their instruments, and there's a there's a level of of artistry that I think is just slowly slipping away, slipping away. And and when you see these guys do it for real, and you when you see the real stuff, and you see someone play a Hammond organ, and he knows how to work a Leslie, um, and it, it's it's such a wonderful thing to see that. And yet, when you have a little plugin that you can get, and it has the Leslie, you know, emulation where you. You know what I mean? It's just it's just not the same thing and it doesn't sound the same and it doesn't even react the same. You're not going to learn how to play it idiomatically when you're in sort of inside of a little digital recording studio like that. You know, that just to use that as a gross example, yeah. you know, you've got this half moon switch that your left hand has to operate in order to be able to turn the Leslie speed from one thing to the other. So the result of that is if you're playing chords with your left hand and a melody with your right hand, you have to take your hand off of the chords to be able to switch the Leslie and then come back on again. And that will give you something idiomatic that wouldn't happen if you were, uh, you know, just doing a plug-in and then changing a continuous controller value or something like that. The gentleman we were talking about, Chris Galston, um, um, he has this closet where he has these Leslie speakers in it and he was demoing it for us and he could make those things growl. I mean, that that Leslie growl, that's just, you you can't, I don't know, you can make things sound like it, but when you hear the real thing, a real Leslie, a real growl, and then you get a microphone and you have to learn how to place it, there's just... I don't, there's just that's it's still real. valid. It, it's, yeah. it's valid, you know, and it really it it affects the creativity, and it affects how things sound, and it affects how you play, and it affects what you write. And I think that was one of the things that really impressed me as I'm going to all these places is just to see the the craftsmanship of these these people. I mean, right? Wouldn't you say? I mean, Chris is a is a craftsman, right? Yeah, he's incredible. Um, I was blown away. <laughs> by his like raw talent, his just knack for just, you know, creating the most incredible music just on the spot. Like it was, it was really beautiful. And just to see him and his element was just the coolest thing. Like I was like, how do I deserve to be here to hear him play? Like I felt so honored. It, it reminded me of when I heard you play the piano for the first time with for Stevie when we were touring way back in the day and you got up there and Rob, and I've, we've said it many times, Rob can play Stevie's parts like unlike anybody else. And there's 
to hear Rob play it on Stevie's piano, not on, you know, not on some little keyboard or some little controller that there's, I don't know. I, I just, I'm really, well, it was a thrill for me too to actually like play superstition on his clavinet. I always thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> I remember. Yeah. I just remember the very first soundcheck when you sat down. Cause I don't even, we met a little bit like mm-hmm. when we were putting the racks together, but Rob's a superstar. So he just comes in with his briefcase and just like, okay, let's go. <laughs> But when you sat down at Stevie's piano and you played it and it was just chilled. I actually heard you play before I heard Stevie play. Well, Stevie's I had piano. to warm you up for him. I, <laughs> I was the warm-up act. <laughs> but anyhow, all, all I have to say is, is I, I don't know, I, I'm getting back on this real kick. I like real things. I like I like the real stuff. And, and this is a big step for me coming from, a, you know – I don't even want to tell you how many plugins I have in my. I don't believe in plugins. I will point out. I will point out that you know, eighteen months ago, we probably had episode after episode after episode talking about all of the new cool music apps for the iPad, and then Rob would say, "No, that stuff isn't musical," and we would say, "Yes, it is. It's really cool." And we don't even have those conversations anymore. I know because the cool thing on the iPad was when someone actually did something new. You know, there are some sound generation things for the iPad that are cool. There are. The problem was always getting them out of the iPad in some kind of high fidelity way, which there are solutions for now. But And don't get me wrong. I still love technology and the iPad and stuff. But I think for me, it's always been a crutch. Like when I was playing it, when I play a real piano, there's – even though I kind of suck, there's there's a certain amount of, of um, I don't know, romance and just inspiration but when you get behind the real thing, I, I think it just helps you become a, a better musician. I, I really think so. I think you can just sum it up that the emulations will save you money and save space, but they're not as good. You know, on that note, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a lot of other fun stuff. I had to get us to a break. <laughs> okay, we'll see you on the other side. You're listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and West Wave Audio. Have a question for the panel? Would you like to be a guest on the Audio Nowcast and live in the L.A. area? Email us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back to the Audio Nowcast. And before the break, we were talking about emulation. We were talking about Audio Nowcast spaces. We were talking about a lot of fun stuff. And uh, actually, during the break, um, Bliss made a great point, And I want her to make the same point because it kind of sums up everything. And at the same time, challenges well, Mike is a fan of the plugins, um, and he's been going to these recording studios and seeing some real music being made. And uh, he said it was really refreshing. So I said, "Why? How is real refreshing? Real refreshing? That's you know that's kind of deep because you're right. It should be that way anyway. But I guess in the world that we live in, where you don't know what's real and what's not, even the pitch, even you know auto tune, you don't even know if your singers can actually sing. There are a lot of well-known singers that get kudos for their voice that on the road, they have an auto-tune rig. Um, I don't blame them. You know, you really can't take anything away from them because it's hard to perform at that level. 
you know, all those nights. But it's it's just gotten to the point that you don't know what's what's real anymore. People are lazy. How'd they used to do it? They well, used to sing out a tune and we liked it. I know. What's wrong with that? I, I think it's great. It's but, I don't know. It's a society of perfectionists. Crazy. You know, Death Cab's a really good example of going to a show where it doesn't sound like their album and it sounds better. You know, you get to experience something. Do you think they use autotune? I, I couldn't say. I, I would like to say no, but you really, if it's done properly, you don't know. You know, it doesn't always have to sound like a robot. Um, I know someone who doesn't use autotune. Uh, Stevie doesn't use autotune. He's he's always performed, you know, real and live. But I will say with Stevie, <laughs> he doesn't have to autotune because he makes everybody tune to him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? Because uh-huh. literally every – instead of A440, Stevie's tuned to A441. Two. Two. A442. Wow, no wonder all those. <laughs> Were you always uh, one flat? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's, he, yeah, that's right. Um, but he's always A442. Um, so if you're trying to go and make it as a Stevie Wonder uh, fill in? Yeah. Understudy? <laughs> <laughs> Impersonator? Tribute band? Yeah. Just, just tune everything to A442. I have a fun fact about that, okay. which I only learned last year. So if you tune a piano, a grand piano, instead of 440, you tune it to 442, how much extra pressure on the harp does that put in pounds, would you guess? Oh, man. Wow. We're only talking two, you know, two cents. I, More than you think. The tension on a soundboard already, already is enormous. Mm-hmm. So I learned this from a piano tuner. How much? An extra thousand pounds. Wow. Yeah, thousand I'm pounds of pressure. 88 keys. Yeah, yeah, it adds up. It's a lot of little strings. Wow. See, I just blew your mind. You just blew my mind. And you know what? That was real. A442, and you blew my mind. It was That's refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's probably why I got fired because I was doing all those A441s. Oh, yeah. Now, remember. We had racks. How many how many modules were in there? Like fifty modules, sixty yeah. modules. We had these racks. Think about sixty modules. All everything we had, all the uh, Kurzweil, and we had the Rollins, and we had the the JV nine nineties. We had all that stuff and all these racks. And every single one of them, we had to go in and manually tune them to. Oh, I think over the years, I mean, I probably bought five hundred synths for them. And the first thing we did with every single one was take it out of the box and retune it. I mean, it's mind-boggling. It you was. have to do it all at once. But it was real. It's oh, it was real. real. It's all real. I don't know. I'm on a real kick. You're on a real kick. I, <laughs> I'm on a real kick. Um, That's real neat. <laughs> <laughs> We're... We're to the point where it's like real is supposed to be something brand new and it's actually the way it was always supposed to be. It's always cyclical though. I mean there's been you know, acoustic music, then electronic music, then everybody's hungering for acoustic again. It just goes round and round. Yeah. And then, I mean, I don't want really to take anything away from the electronic guys because they're doing some amazing things too. They're, there's a skill to work in a synth and there's a skill to work in a plugin. And my favorite um, – Software developer out there right now, Output, they just came out with their strings and and it sounds great and you'll be able to do some really cool stuff and their their interface is, is phenomenal. 
But yet at the same time, we were in Rack Studios and we heard this harpist playing. And there's the skill and the mastery that you have to have to be a good harpist. I mean, I respect harpists with the utmost respect because to me that just seems like a really difficult instrument to play. The way you have to string it, the way you have to pluck it, the way you have to, you know, t- I can't imagine how they do it and always hit the right, the right strings, you know? I bet they practice. Well, probably. <laughs> remember when we were on the road with Stevie and sometimes we had good harpists and sometimes oh, yeah. we had <laughs> not as good. Not as good. I remember Henry would, would like be working with the harpists and would be, you know, trying to get them because they. Well, but mainly it was because Stevie was trying to get them to swing and most harpists are like straight-up classical players who don't swing. Uh, and Stevie would try to get them to be funky. And, I mean, you could always tell who the great players in the pickup orchestras were because there were those who just loved all kinds of music and actually could get funky, even though they may seem like they're classical violinists. But, you know, then they could solo and have some funk. And with the harp, it was just hit or miss. Uh, and they had, funky sometimes. you know, talk about pressure. How would you like to sit down doing a Stevie Wonder gig in a giant arena and you have to play if it's magic and it's probably the first time you've seen the music for it and it's all you and Stevie that's that's some pressure that is some pressure they were usually pretty good didn't have too many bad ones <laughs> i just i'm thinking of one we can talk about it later but okay <laughs> <laughs> even if they are bad at least they were real they were real <laughs> Real bad. <laughs> and even a harp played badly is still kind of pretty sounding. So we're working we're working on a um bunch of music at Disney right now. Mm-hmm. And you know, as I've said on the show before, you know, me and the other composer we do everything in Cubase and we've got, you know, Vienna Ensemble Pro and we've got all of the wonderful sample libraries and all of that stuff. But um the piece that the other composer is is working on right now, we were able to get the people that we were working for to pay for an orchestra. And so the result of that is that we are making the demo of it, and they're like, wow, this sounds amazing. And we keep saying, just wait. Wait till we take this, you know, and take it and record a real symphony orchestra doing it. It will sound 200 times more awesome. And there is just something, you know, there is there is nothing like having all of that art, having all of that craft, um, you know, basically being work, working together as a team to try to be able to make an incredible sounding thing. And I can, I can hardly wait to go out and, uh, and record this stuff. It's so funny that you say that because we had a meeting with the creative director over um, Warner Chapel Hill production music in uh, over in London. And he was telling us that their trend, they're recording real orchestras, real bands in places like Abbey Road. And it's just, and you listen to the production music that comes from these guys and it's just on another level. It's, it's, it sounds real. I know that's, that's kind of a horrible thing to say, but it, it does. It sounds right. I mean, the music sounds bigger and how would you describe it? I mean, it's, I pull uh, library music all the time for what I do, and I mean, there's just a difference with what's out there versus what I heard when I was in London. Um, I mean, it it's usable. Like, I want that in my pieces. I don't want the other stuff that I 
have been listening to for the past three years. You know, I wanted to ask you, and, and we can ask you now because I think it'll help people out. When you pull music, is there anything that you that will catch your ear to want to put in a piece as opposed to like, is there, do you listen for anything in particular um, when you are pulling music for whatever, you know, feature or whatever featurette that you're, you're working on? I mean, it, it has to be within the right genre. It has to match up with the score and the um, soundtrack. And it's basically soundalikes for really popular music. So anything that would go well underneath sound bites, but would still be interesting. Well, what's interesting is, is when you get real bands doing real music and production, it kind of lends itself to being underneath dialogue and it lends itself to being able to work into a piece more. And sometimes I think bands get in trouble or composers get in trouble when they put that funky little high frequency thing in there, you know, that little synth and they, and they're, you know, they have a great cue. How many times have you tried to like wanting to cut a cue in? And I know, Ken, you've probably come across this where you, you hear a cue and it sounds great except for that one Fill in the blank. <laughs> Ask for stems. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then you're dialed. But a lot of times you can't get stems, you know, on some of the production music that's out there. Yeah. Literally right before coming over here, I'd spent three hours um, taking stems from some production music that I needed to, to use and trying to make it cooler, adding more stuff to it, adding more percussion and things. And it's really hard to shoehorn music into it's really hard to shoehorn music into something and make it feel like exactly what your aesthetic wants it to be. I, I want to have more time and just compose something appropriately for it. But you know, that isn't always a possibility. You know, we're going to, we're going to do a whole show on production music because production music and the composers that are out there and how you use it and how you sell it and who uses it and who sells it. That's, that's a whole nother level of, of, crazy because there's hundreds of thousands of cues that are out there and everybody's competing against everybody. And, and I work with some clients where I have to pull from, you know, audio blocks, which is like $99 for all the music that you can get for a year. But the music sounds like it's, it's all done <laughs> on an iPad, you know? Right. And then you work with some stuff like the Warner stuff and you work with the APM, you work with the high level stuff. And it's just, it's a wild west out there. Do you, have you done much production music, Rob? I did a ton back when it used to have real budgets. I mean, I was doing production music with live orchestras all the time and, and live bands. I mean, it was a lot of fun, but I was not willing to compete with people willing to do a cue for, you know, 200 bucks with the hope of getting it used a lot. I mean, we used to have real budgets for real production music. That's, I mean, we were doing featurettes for the big film companies and doing big movie trailers and stuff like that. And they, there was substantial money behind them. But those budgets, I mean, the reason I stopped doing trailers, the budgets went down 95%. You know, wow. what a trailer that might have had a budget of $100,000 for two minutes of music all of a sudden had a budget of 5000 And it won, they wanted the same music. So during the heyday, I'd be able to go into a studio with a 100-piece symphony and do whatever I wanted, and it was great. The trick was recording it in an hour because it was so expensive you couldn't take any longer than that. But – um, you know, once the libraries got reasonably good, the producers couldn't really tell the difference between, you know, sort of hack job editing and, and a custom score. So they were fine with doing it for cheap. And so that's, that's why I got out of it. But yeah, for, 
I don't know, 10, 15 years, I did a ton of that. Wow. I think it's coming around though, because I think there's, there's a push for quality. You know, it's, it's, but there's also so much library stuff. I think the, the idea of the push for quality now is you just buy better libraries. I don't, I don't see the symphony budgets ever coming back the way they were, except for the biggest of films, you know, the, the giant blockbusters still have some money to spend, but still not what they used to. Wow. I mean, they used to hemorrhage money. Okay. <laughs> I mean, a trailer will or a commercial will still spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to use a hit record. Yeah. Like something recognizable. But short of that, the budgets have really just gone way down. Have you done any production music, Nick? Um, I, I've done a little bit, but it was exactly the same thing. The only kind of production music that I wanted to do was sort of funky Hammond organ based sort of groove stuff. Right. Because there was no point in my trying to write orchestral stuff that would be, you know, able to compete with other people that that's what they do. It didn't sort of make any sense. So I always wanted to say, okay, well, if I were to get and get into the production thing, what would I do? I would want to do comedy cues. I would want to do stuff, you know, that grooves a lot, right. that, you know, focuses on what it is that I bring to the party, you know, these 1970s electromechanical uh, keyboard kinds of things. That's, uh, that's the aspect of it that I really like. I was, but I just had a different thought that disappeared out of my senile and febrile brain. <laughs> Well, if it comes back, let us know. I will. It's such a weird game production music is right now because there's so many different licenses. There's so many different levels of of how you can use it, whether it's going to go broadcast, whether it's going to go you know, all in for broadcast and World Wide Web, and whether it's going to go radio and, and, uh, and the time. You know, they'll license it for a certain amount of time. Um, so – Production music is is kind of funky, and we were talking about all this. I think that's going to be something we'll, we'll kind of look into. That's why um, at Disney, me and my guys have created over 800 cues over the last uh, five years. And the reason is because we don't have to deal with any paperwork. We don't have to deal with any licensing. You know, if we need something that sounds like Beauty and the Beast or Cinderella or, uh, you know, Inside Out, we've got it. And it's been it's been a fantastically great thing to do. It's worked really well for us. It saves you a lot of time and effort. You know what? I've done the same thing, though. I've worked on some stuff. I do some web stuff for one of my clients. And, and if I can't find it, I'll just throw something together because who just wants to hassle with that? Because sometimes it's not as much as you think. You know, I was doing radio and we were licensing cues for, I think they were licensing it for like 400 bucks, which doesn't seem like a lot of money, but I guess if you, get little bits and pieces all over the place. But there's literally the library that I was looking at, there was probably tens of thousands of different cues, you know, and then you have to, obviously you, you search and you get the metadata and you go down, but man. it's like a game. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of fun. I actually enjoy it. Like I, I really like listening to music. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, just finding music, right? Because then you like inspirational. That's a highlight of my day, pulling library music. <laughs> Having to do a search, that, that's a whole nother thing. When you search for production music and the producer will, you know, they'll give you a couple of key terms and you start searching and it's like um, longing is always one. They, oh, we you know we want something emotional and longing. And then you get all these longing cues and it's not even what they were wanting. It's just, it's just not. And then you're like, okay, what's longing? Okay. No, they want mood, upbeat. You know, you just start 
thrown in all these different terms and things like that. It's it's kind of funny. Yeah, I do like these thorough Google searches. Like, what is this terminology? Because it's not popping up on the production, you know, audio library. And it's just like this back and forth game. <laughs> wow. See? I know we got off on a tangent there. Um, let's let's bring it back around. Um, before we go, um, Rob, what have you been up to lately? What have I been up to lately? I've actually been trying to make some sense of all the hardware in my studio. I have so much stuff in uh, like back rooms and closets and uh, piles of keyboards in the tracking room and stuff. And I've been trying to just sort of – prioritize the stuff that I want to have closest to my fingertips and sort of rearrange my my key work areas to have the the coolest stuff again. Are you are you willing to purge any of your gear? There's no purging that's taken place yet. <laughs> we'll see. You were, I I I just on a sidebar, I I just started purging some of my gear and actually Ken's been helping me and we've been selling stuff left it's and It's in right. the air. I feel like, you know, reorganizing and purging and it's Tis the season. Yeah, I've been doing the same thing, and it's been great. Yeah. I like the reorganizing. I'm not so good at the purging. Because <laughs> well, you never if know you when you may need space, something. If you have space, then why do you even need to? Yeah. yeah, so that's what I do. I just keep getting more space. Yeah. Well, that works. Yeah, but there's some stuff that you just, you'll just you just never, ever use again because there's stuff that does it better. There are yeah. some examples. Like I have two MKS-70 synth modules, the Roland ones yes. from a million years ago, and I don't even like one of them. <laughs> and I'm not even sure how I ended up with two of them. <laughs> but for some reason, I have two of them, and I don't like either one. But Yeah, if he doesn't hold on to them, then how does he know if he doesn't want to use them or exactly. not? Exactly. <laughs> what happens if a client comes in and says, I want this like cheesy piano sound? Do you have an MKS-70 by any? I say, I have two of them. <laughs> you never know. I mean, I have so much stuff that's like that. The I, the odds. I'm hoping that one client walks in who needs all that stuff. Like, we really need Dynacord drums on this. It's like, well, I'm your guy. Oh my gosh, Dynacord drums. Got them. You need Dynacord drums? <laughs> Dynacord drums. Anyone in need of Dynacord drums, drop me an email. The Dynacord snare drum. That that was you could identify a Dynacord snare drum. That was and the toms. Yes. Well, I can identify a Dynacord drum machine. It's the thing I always smash my foot into because it's holding the door open <laughs> <laughs> as I enter the studio in the dark. <laughs> That's not true. It is in good shape. That's funny. That is hilarious. I'm uh, arranging and not purging. That's my uh, latest. Uh, What about you, Miss Bliss? What kind of productions have you been working on? (laughs) Um, Well, I think that you pretty much summed it up this whole podcast. (laughs) I'm traveling, doing a lot of fun things for audio nowcast spaces, and uh, I'm really excited for what 2017 has brought. Nice. Nick. Well, I have been purging. Um, and it was, it was, it was, Hey, at least I haven't been acquiring. No, this is an improvement. (laughs) It was, it was time for me to, 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 uh, you know, lighten my load a bit. And I saw this wonderful documentary on HBO called minimalism. And, you know, it really sort of struck me that it's like, okay, which are the things that I really need and which are the things that I don't. And it was, it really was the idea of, okay, what, what stuff will I not use again? So, um, I know you guys have been using eBay. I've been using Reverb.com, and it's been very, very convenient for me. I've really liked it. Um, there's a lot of aspects of it that are very slick and easy to be able to work with, so I don't have to deal with other people. Um, and what's, I, their, what's their percentage? Are they 3.5%? Yeah. Oh, man. We just – we got – 
taken. <laughs> eBay, 10%. I mean, Reverb.com is great. Yeah. It's really great. And I just sold. So, for example, I had a, a, a Sennheiser 421 that I had bought on eBay. The guy had taken a picture from the good side and then he sent it to me. And the bad side, some drummer had clearly used it for a cowbell because it had like <laughs> all sorts of dings in it. Um, I, I took it, put it on reverb and said, I, you know, I realized I'm not going to use this mic ever again. And I put it up and said, hey, I'm not going to do what the guy did that sold it to me. I'm going to show you that this mic works perfectly, but it's got dings in the, you know, in the grill. And I took close up pictures of it, put it on there. Put it on Reverb.com for $150, and it was sold within like two hours. So it's pretty great. You go and the whole they, that's a good price for that. Well, it was it was a beat up old 421. Yeah, but as long know, as it worked, it was. Mike I, bought I think, it. <laughs> yeah, I think it was a fair deal all the way around. And the thing that I really like about Reverb, and I'm you know I don't work for them or anything. I just have found it to be very effective for me. Is that it's a real all the way through kind of solution, right? So they handle the money and it's really easy to do and you can have different ways that you can sort of bump up your listings and so forth. And if anyone is listening to this and uh, is looking for a Pro Tool system, just go to Perceptive Sound Design uh, for on <laughs> Reverb.com and you can find mine. Wait, what, what Pro Tool system? I'm selling my HD native system. What uh, what software? Pro Tools 910 HD. Oh. So that's but, uh, that's gonna be twenty five hundred bucks to get it up to uh, twelve. Well, Isn't that step? Maybe that's why nobody is buying it. That shouldn't be. It no, shouldn't. Of it shouldn't be. <sighs> but anyway, the point is that I've been selling things there, and that purging has been re- feeling very good. I'm not selling anything that I use as a regular instrument and that I really love, but it feels good to be able to open up space for me to be able to do that. And you know, sort of my big plan is to take a lot of this old and mediocre stuff that I have. Like, for example, I've got four reverb units that I'm putting up along with, you know, microphones and things. I would love to turn those four reverb units into a single Bricasti M7 Wait, reverb. What, what reverb? what reverbs are, though? They're, they're not bad. I mean, uh, well, I tell- a Lexicon PCM80, a PCM90, a TC Electronics M3000, and maybe even my PCM70, although that one would be pretty tough for me to get rid of. Do you have the cards for the... Uh... For the 80, I do. Do you really? Yeah. Yeah. So the whole notion here is that I love the Bricasti so much and I only need one reverb in my life because there's enough plugins, you know, East West Spaces, for example, which does orchestral spaces beautifully and other things like that. There's enough good sounding reverb plugins out there. But they're not real. Well, <laughs> so that's what I've been up to. Nice. Well, so but he still hasn't sold his protest section. <laughs> yeah, I will. Someone will buy it. <laughs> hey, wait, really quick. Yeah, we're gonna sell it. I want you to what 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 do they look for on Reverb.com? Uh, uh, perceptive sound design. Okay, it's just my storefront, and I've got my HD native system. It's really nice. It's and got you can an make Omni an offer and, too, right? Sure. Yeah. Okay. It's got the yeah, card. It's awesome. got the Omni. It's got Pro Tools nine ten, and I will pay for the transfer fee and all of that stuff. Ooh. So Ooh. it's going to be great for somebody who wants to get into Pro Tools. Yeah. It's a great, great thing. Well, I just want to be a Nuendo guy for the rest of my life. All right. Now awesome. I will. Gonna, I'm gonna. I'm gonna help you out here because okay. number one. You take care of your gear, and I know that. Oh, yes. I've seen your gear, okay? So if you're out there looking for a Pro Tools system, you can't go wrong with Nick's system, all right? So let's sell it. Let's The seven listeners that we have out there. <laughs> Operators are standing by. That's right. Uh, we're going to work hard. We're going to sell Nick's, <laughs> Nick's Pro Tools system, all right? So uh, 
Come on. I'm sure there's somebody out there. There's some student out there that wants to get into Pro Tools, and that's a great way. Let's sell Nick's Pro Tools system. <laughs> what about you, Ken? What well, are you up to? This, this room that we're sitting in two months ago was filled with junk and, and all sorts of things. And for the past couple of months, we've been, you know, moving things out, purging, selling, and acquiring new things. And I want to give a shout out to Rode for hooking us up with these mics that sound awesome. I want to also mention a film we worked on. It's called Flower. We recorded ADR for it. It's Max Winkler's film. It premiered at Tribeca. And that was pretty awesome. Nice. What have you been up to, Mike? I've been up to a lot of things. Thank you for asking. Yeah. <laughs> we're all very interested. <laughs> so we're uh, re- re- rebranding, reworking the podcast. Um, and this, I, I like the new sound. I love this studio. It sounds great. I'm getting used to my voice actually sounding like decent. And uh, this is really cool. We're doing some great things. Um, we've got some great guests lined up. Um, and in all truthfulness and honesty, we had a guest tonight, but he actually got um, caught in another country. <laughs> he was flying in. Um, so, uh, but we're going to catch him next time. And, and I'm not going to tease anything because I'll just let him show up and then we'll tease him mercilessly <laughs> on the air. But, um, but yeah, but, but the audio now cast is going strong after 10 years, we kind of had to revamp things. We kind of had to reinvent ourselves and, um, it's going to be fun. And I just want to thank everybody for being here today. Everybody around the table. Thank, thank you, you so much. You Wouldn't know. miss it for anything, Mike. And uh, the guys that aren't here, um, I know a lot of them are working, and I know a lot of them are working on their projects, and they have some really great stuff. Um, and we've got, you know, Diego's out there doing his thing, and I know Brandon, I talked to Brandon, and he's out there doing his thing. And when they all come back and we all get together, it's going to be really, really good. All right. Well, for myself and all the guys and girl, um, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for hanging in there with us for 10 years. Look forward to another 10 years and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and West wave audio. The Audio Nowcast is hosted by Mike Rodriguez. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.